At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Dr. Shweb Ahmed Malik. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Paul, for inviting me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Shoaib, as I'm sure you know, is a professor at Zaid University in Dubai. He is a scientist turned philosopher and theologian, focusing on key areas in the realm of science and Islam, Islamic theology, and atheism and Islam. Recently, Shoaib co-authored a fascinating article entitled does criticizing intelligent design, or ideas it's known, undermine design discourse in the Quran? A kalamic response. Now, this is actually a really important subject. So um, I'll put a link to the article in the description below. And uh, so could you kindly introduce us to uh, this subject? Sure. Um, first and foremost, before um, I do that, I just want to say Ramadan Mubarak to you, Paul, and to all your viewers who are watching. So it's been declared here in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh -huh. That's Ramadan tomorrow. So, you know, wonderful greetings to the month, wherever you are, who is ever listening. So that's the first thing I'd like you to say. Too, you too as well. That's, that's, that's great news. Uh, Thank the, you. The news hadn't quite reached us in London yet, but obviously it has in Dubai, which is great. Yeah, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. So um, that's the first thing. Um, now, as for the this article, so I had the pleasure of working with two fast, fantastic individuals, hmm. um, Sheikh Hamza Karamali, who you've had on your show, and uh, PhD candidate Muammar Khalele. Um, he's a friend of mine he for a good few years now, mashallah. And he's a PhD student doing his uh, dissertation on Ash'ari Kalam and atheism under Dr. Mansoor Ali at Cardiff University. So it's a very relevant an exciting uh, topic. Yep. Um, the three of us got together because um, of a conference uh, that I organized at Leiden University back in 2021 on Islam and evolution. And we had several contributions um, at that conference. And I presented uh, my take, which is how the design representation that we see in the Quran is not necessarily the same thing as we see in the intelligent design argument. And given that in the discussion of Islam and evolution, ID has become a huge cultural force and an amazing point of disagreement between even Muslim scholars themselves. I wanted to take a closer look at this argument and really vet it through uh, a particular theological camp, uh, uh, which is the Sunni Kalamic school. Uh, this includes the Ash'aris and the Maturidis. 
Um, this does not undermine any other schools that may want to look at the discussion. We just keep a narrow focus because yeah. at, at the moment you try to you know, broaden your perspective, you will dilute your conversation. And I'm not an expert in other territories. This is my area of focus. Um, however, the findings in this presentation and in this article could very well apply to other theological schools and perspectives. So none of this is supposed to be an exclusivity that's being displayed here. Rather, it's a sharpened study that may or may not be applicable to other perspectives. That's it, inshallah. And uh, what we try to do is um, we try to compare uh, the ID argument with what Sheikh Hamza coined as the Quranic design argument, the QD argument. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we try to show here, that on the face of it, they may seem very similar, but as you, you know, dig down to the details, things begin to, um, they get a little bit more complicated and you see some differentiation. Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight the differentiation for the sake of getting further clarity on what is otherwise a very convoluted discourse at times. But also, in my personal opinion, ID can also be a potential, a potential tool for undermining people's faith. And I'll explain that in due course. I, I just say that I, I have read this article, uh, as I said, uh, linked to in the description below. It is very interesting. I do recommend it. I sincerely do. And ID, of course, is jargon, isn't it? ID is a term associated with predominantly American, even Christian uh, um, theorists, uh, scientists, and people like Dr. Stephen Mayer, who had the uh, privilege of interviewing on the channel a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. That is distinct, you're saying, conceptually, religiously, theologically distinct and even different in some ways from the Quran's design argument or the Quranic understanding of design. And you want to disambiguate, you want to separate out these two and have clear blue water between the two, because you see the American ID as potentially pastorally dangerous, leading to atheism, whereas you think the Quranic argument is much more rooted in uh, a solid epistemology, ontology, theology. And I don't anticipate, sure. but I just want to clarify, the idea is the American intelligent design understanding associated yeah. with Behe, Mayer, Dembski, et al. Yeah. And you're coming from a particularly Islamic understanding but rooted in the Quran, which is actually quite distinct and doesn't have the weaknesses of the intelligent design movement in the American yeah. ID sense. Well, they both all believe in design, but there are differences and you think the Islamic one is much more better grounded and, and, and not likely to lead to unbelief as well. But anyway, I just wanted to clarify yeah. that at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's, that's exactly where I'm coming from. Cool. Sorry, am, am, I, am, I, am I continuing, Paul? This is my cue oh, to continue? It is. Sorry, I should have said. Please do. All right. Okay. I, I interrupted. Thank you. Okay, no worries. So, Bismillah. So, um, this is the overview of the presentation today. Uh, now, I'm a, I've designed this presentation so that even if somebody who's watching this does not have any familiarity with the ID argument uh, or the movement, uh, you will be able to get a rough idea uh, through this presentation. Um, I will briefly highlight what their argument is and the potential uh, concerns that Muslims in particular may have if you start critiquing ID. Given that ID is now so heavily entangled in the Muslim world, and I'd say even other religious um, circles, that um, the moment you start criticizing ID, a lot of people get worried, whoa, where are you going with this? Yeah. Um, and so I want to clarify what I'm trying to do when I criticize ID uh, and specifically clarify what I am not criticizing. 
because people yeah, I mean, it's have... It's really important because you're not saying that God didn't design the world. You believe exactly. that God designed the world. You believe yeah, that God's yeah, yeah. designer. But you're talking about a particular uh, understanding uh, yeah. as found in people like Dembski, Behe, Mayer, yeah. in America, North America, uh, and perhaps in Germany and so on. But uh, And you're saying that that's problematic. But the Islamic understanding yeah. of intelligent design is not problematic. So you're not against yeah. intelligent design, but this is, the, this is where it gets confusing with the language. You're, oh, you're exactly yeah, the terminology. You're not against intelligent. This is why I guess it can potentially be confusing. Perhaps. Exactly, exactly. So my, my intention, hopefully, is to try and, and uh, deconvolute that. Right. Um, I then give a brief overview of what we argue. Now, just um, as as a as a point of notice at the beginning of this presentation, the way we wrote the article is not the way I have framed my presentation. Um, whenever we write articles, generally, we, I mean, we, we're having an academic audience in front of us. So sometimes we have to be succinct to the point, etc. I am fleshing out a lot more basic ground here to finally get to the uh, end point of that article. So if you don't see the presentation map on directly into the article, that is by design. Once we kind of, once I've established what we are arguing, then I highlight the problems with ID and then I summarize my point there. So inshallah, then we can, you know, um, have that back and forth whenever you see fit, inshallah. So um, to begin with, um, as Paul correctly pointed out several times at the beginning of this presentation, that it, intelligent design intuitively simply means that there is design and it is um, meaningful and it, it indicates that there is an intelligent being, right? However, ID in the literature is, is in reference to a specific movement. And that is where this differentiation needs to ha start happening to make sense of the conversation. If those points are not clarified from the beginning, people make it confused. So yeah. intelligent design is a modern American Western movement that started in the 1980s, right? Um, and there were several scholars that came under this, which who we'll look at shortly. Uh, and uh, they started picking up um, a lot of criticism that they have against neo-Darwinian evolution. Now, what is neo-Darwinian evolution? We'll get to that in a second as well. Um, but these guys eventually um, crystallized into an institution known as the Design Institute. Um, and they have a specific center there called Center for Science and Culture. And this was established in 1990. Since then, they've published several books. And these are some of the main people that are behind this movement. So Philip Johnson, um, Charles Faxon, Michael Behe, William Dembski, and Stephen Meyer, who, who you had on your show very recently, Paul, right? He's the author of um, uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis, which we'll reference to in, in a while. Um, for those people who are interested in the history of the movement, there's a really good book um, by Woodward, Doubts about Darwin. So that's a good book to kind of um, go to if you want to see the history and the development, the intellectual progression of the movement. It's a very, very good book. Very, very, very detailed. Um, so these are some of the main books that have been published by these thinkers. So starting from the left right here. Uh, Paul, can you see my mouse uh, cursor? Or I can see, I, I can see a cursor, yes. I, I just want okay, to say that, that Philip Johnson was actually a lawyer uh, by training. Yes, by he trade. was the lawyer. Professor yeah. of law yeah. at Berkeley. He was actually a very distinguished lawyer, but he was not a scientist at all. Uh, I'm not. I'm just saying that that is just the case. He's now um, sadly passed away, but uh, he was a he lawyer. He passed away, yeah, very sadly passed away. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was a lawyer, but he was a very sharp mind. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, kudos to him to, to kind of, you know, 
starting a whole movement uh, that's now you know worldwide known. Um, but yeah, he he came up with this book called Darwin on Trial, uh, and then following that, you had Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box. Um, so he's he's a you know molecular biologist. William Dembski is the philosopher slash mathematician. He gives um, ID more of a mathematical edge and a philosophical one. And then you have Stephen Meyer. So Stephen Meyer's first book, Signature in the Cell, is the one that I'm presenting here. But he recently published his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis in 2021. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who want to see you know, what that book is about, you can see, I'm sure you can put a link there, um, Paul, yeah. uh, in the in description, inshallah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, to understand the ID argument, we, we, we need to kind of have a few things set in place. Once those things are set in place, then we can start the conversation. Um, the first thing we need to establish is that design arguments in general can be divided into two domains, cosmological design and biological, right? Cosmological design is to do with design in the entirety of the universe. So these, these include things like laws of nature, they're, nature's, they're the laws of nature of the universe, Therefore, yeah. that infers that there's a lawgiver of some sorts. The universe is very finely tuned. Therefore, there's a fine tuner. You know, so something very really large scale on a cosmological level. Biological design is not at this large scale domain. It's actually in the very specific area of biology. So stuff like DNA, your eye, the flagellum, etc. Now, that's the first thing we need to establish, that there is a differentiation between cosmological design arguments and biological design arguments. Number two, we need to understand neo-Darwinian evolution. Now, for, for, for those of you who, um, who want to get more detail in, into this, you can see my previous lecture with Paul, but I'm just going to keep this very short because uh, this is something I'm regurgitating. Um, neo-Darwinian evolution is just a combination of three principles. Of course, you can go into more details you know, and take up a BSc degree in, in this area, but I just like to keep this simple just to start the conversation. First thing, deep time. The Earth is really, really old, much, much older than we initially thought. It's not 6,000 years old. It's about 4.6 billion years old. There's this idea of common ancestry that every single biological entity in the world is connected through a family-like network. So there's a family tree of life that yep. connects humans with everything else in the biological space. Finally, the mechanisms uh, involved, particularly in neo-Darwinian evolution. So yes, there, there are non-Darwinian renditions of evolution, but the neo-Darwinian rendition entails that there are two kind of primary processes in place, natural selection and random mutation. Natural selection simply means that when you put a certain number of species in a given environment, they have to adapt to that environment, otherwise they will die out as a species in, in large numbers. Um, so there has to be some kind of filtration process which is done through the landscape that they're in. Random mutation is to do with the internal biology of the genetics involved. Uh, and these are based on how the genetic materials are sliced and diced from parent generation to the offspring generation. Combine these two, and if you mix it in the cocktail with large spans of time, you get neo-Darwinian evolution. Paul, do you think that that, that yep. was a, a that's, that's summary? Yeah, absolutely. Very succinct, very succinct. Great. Okay. So now, what is the ID argument given those two distinctions? So first and foremost, we need to clarify that ID is specifically a biological design argument. And number two, ID, uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the ID camp, right? So some people are 
against hydrogeneity. Sorry, heterogeneity is just a fancy way of saying differences of opinion, I believe. Is that yes, right? yes, yes. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The word hetero meaning other in Greek, but, you know, rather than anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, hmm. ID is a big camp and there are many different perspectives in the ID camp. Some people reject all three propositions. Some people are accept common ancestry. For example, Michael Behe has no problem believing that common ancestry is true, that humans, you know, have this genetic relationship and, and uh, with, with, with chimpanzees. Others are agnostic, like Stephen Myers. He's, he's agnostic about common ancestry. So you do have that um, um, cocktail in the ID camp. There's a lot of difference of opinions. What they're collectively united on, however, collectively united on, is that the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism, so natural selection, random mutation, are insufficient to explain certain phenomena in the biological space. That's specifically their criticism as a collected front, right? And they localize into many different arenas. Uh, we don't need to go into every one of them, but just for the sake of you know, a few examples, you have the origins of life scenario. So how did the first life start? Uh, famous, the famous bacterial flagellum, which we'll look into. This is because it's e the easiest reference to go to. Yeah. Um, the uh, Cambrian explosion and various aspects in which there are these sudden leaps in the fossil record that people say, hang on, that's too complicated. Therefore, there must be some kind of designer. But yeah, oh, I'm jumping the gun. But fundamentally, as a starting point, please keep in mind the way I am understanding ID in this presentation is that it is a biological design argument and they are specifically criticizing the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism. Now, Paul, I can already see a question coming, coming my way from you. You're going to say, but I interviewed Stephen Meyer and he talked about the cosmos in his book, right? Uh, and so he also included cosmological stuff in there. Now, I have a reason for why he did that. But historically speaking, this movement was primarily uh, a, a, a huge push against neo-Darwinism. Now we yep. can get into cosmological in a while, but for now let's 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 keep the yep. scope here. All right, Bismillah. Now, so this is a very uh, nice diagram which I got from Wikipedia. So copyrights to them. Um, it's a very simple diagram, and this is basically a uh, a flagellum, right? So you have a tail there. It allows you know locomotion. Michael Behe is of the opinion um, that there's so much complicated machinery here that it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Oh for us to entertain that mere um, random mutations and natural selection are sufficient to explain complicated machinery like this. It's, it's virtually impossible. So as a result, a better explanation of something like this is a designer tweaked these things into place for allow such complicated machinery to come into formation. Yeah, because right. he also gives the example of, of, by analogy of a mouse trap, doesn't he? So all mm -hmm. the elements of a mouse trap, the spring, the trap, the the base, and so on. Yeah, all of them have to be in place and working together for the mouse trap to be a mouse trap, and uh, that that can't be the product of randomness. Uh, or, or lack of design, he would argue by analogy. Now, I, I know the response to this, but th that's the analogy he gives, the mousetrap. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so a mousetrap is a basic one. Now, yeah. he says that these things, because these parts have to come into specific places and they have, they have to be tweaked in a certain way, they are irreducibly complex in that you cannot break these things down into their parts. Mm -hmm. It has to exist as it is in this particular configuration. Yeah. That is what he means by irreducibly complex. If you don't understand the terminology, it's fine. But basically, the, the gist of the argument is 
There's so much complexity going on in here that new Darwinism cannot explain this. Ergo, a better explanation as a designer to tweak this into place. That's the fundamental thing. Yeah. For those of you who like to see an argument, this is one way of formulating it. It's not the only way of formulating it, but this is one way of kind of following a syllogism. So it's a basic disjunction. Either an intelligent designer or new Darwinian mechanics explain biological complex, biologically complex entities. New, new Darwinian mechanism does not explain biological complex entities. Therefore, an intelligent designer is a better explanation. That's it. That's yes. their argument in a nutshell. Now, one thing I do want to highlight in their discourse, they make it very clear that the identity of the designer is unknown. But this, they this don't, they don't, as you say in your paper, which you co-authored, in their public discourse, they, yeah. they they don't identify. They don't use the G word. I, I know, I know, uh, Mayer does in his most recent book, but normally they don't use the G word. Sorry, which I mean by which I mean God. But you say, in reality, that they're all Christians and they all believe it's God, and they're not saying it's an alien or some other uh, entity in the universe. Is actually the transcendent creator himself, in understood in a sure. Christian way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So in in their public discourse, because they want to present this as a scientific alternative to neo Darwinism, they try to make it very clear that this is not a religious movement, and that is why they make it crystal clear in their works that the designer can be a variety of things. It doesn't have to be God. The key thing is that there's so much complicated machinery here that the inference to a designer is valid. That's the key point. Regardless of whether we, we know the identity of the designer or not, that's a secondary question altogether. Yeah. The point here is that there's some things that lead us and point us to a designer. Now, uh, most Muslims, in, and, and I give two examples, Muzaffar Ball and Harun Yahya in the paper, um, they automatically presume the designer's God. Automatically they presume. Yeah. Christian ID proponents, at least in their public discourse, are much more nuanced. So this is Michael Behe, in case anyone thinks I'm misrepresenting the, the ID argument. I'm not. This is from his work. He says, while I argue for design, the question of the designer is left open. Possible designer uh, candidates for design include the God of Christianity, angels, you know, Plato's Demiurge, whatever, etc. Aliens, all sorts of stuff. I like that. So, space, space aliens from Alpha Centauri. It's a very specific location in the cosmos. Where they, yeah. It's not like from any old backyard. It's specifically from Alpha Centauri. Okay. Yeah, he knows something that we don't, I think. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, so, I mean, this is, this is quite clear from their work. And this is something that they've maintained consistently, right, for a while. It, uh, Stephen Meyer's new book is, I think, a little bit more out there in the sense that he's now saying, yes, it is God. Um, and he tries to do that through inferences to the back. Yeah, I have the book as well. Yeah, just um, bring the audience. This is the, the book yeah. and a uh, very nice yeah, yeah. cover. Um, yeah, yeah so, so, so this is this is what the argument says that the basically that um, to kind of summarize it all together for you, um, ID thinks a designer is a better explanation for biologically complex things, things like the bacterial flagellum, uh, your eyes, certain you know um, things that you know that we, we find in the fossil record like the Cambrian explosion, origin of life, and the identity of the designer is left open. This is the summary of the ID argument. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, before I move on, do you want to do you want to ask anything here or? Oh no, uh, let's, let's keep things moving. We're doing you're doing very well so far. It's very clear. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Now, um, in my public discourse, uh, I openly criticize ID, uh, and many people take offense to that or they get very worried by that. And I don't 
criticize ID out of thin air. There are certain things that I'm trying to articulate here, which if you, if you understand, you'll see that ID can be problematized in an Islamic framework. Um, but I want to clarify from the beginning, I am not rejecting God as a designer. That is far from reality. Nor am I rejecting that there's a design in the universe. When I see the universe, there is design there. There are laws there. The fact that I have a computer working in front of me, there are laws in place allowing the electricity to run that allows me to speak to Paul across the telecommunication lines so, and the digital airwaves so to have communication. All those are based on predicated on laws in effect. So I do believe that there's design in the universe. Yeah. Three, I am not rejecting design inferences in Islamic scripture. All those three, I negate. Okay, so that, that should be clarified from the get-go. Criticizing ID does not mean you are doing these things. Yeah. None of that is, is the American, uh, American, North American post-1980s, yes. the Behe, Dembski, Mayer, et al. Yeah. movement as a particular variant. You have a different paradigm, which you're now going to come to, I assume. Yeah. But you're not rejecting design as such. You're rejecting this particular cultural, uh, uh, in, in effect, Christian understanding of intelligent design not other understandings yeah. of intelligent design the islamic one is much better grounded you will you will argue i, I know yeah. yeah okay great so that should be clear now in our paper what we do is we distinguish between the id argument and the qd argument and just to kind of work off the last uh, presentation slide i want to maintain and make this explicit the Quranic design argument maintains that God is the designer. God is, that there is design in the universe and there are design in first Islamic scripture. All of those are maintained in QD, all of them. So you may be asking then, okay, Shwe, what is the difference between ID and QD? This is where we now get to. Yeah. So uh, the, the Quranic design argument um, has a couple of steps, three, at least the way I'm formulating it here in the presentation. So I'll start off very simply. The Quranic design argument first establishes a necessary being. And this is um, visualized you know, through this schematic that I, I developed for this presentation slide. So you have a being. It could be a simple cup. It could be a cloud. It could be an atom. It could be any single thing that exists, right? Just to say, uh, this is what you're doing is really important. You're not talking about really complex phenomena like DNA. You're talking about yeah. rock. A tree. Yeah. Uh, the tip of this pen. The tip of the pen. Or, or, or well, you could be talking about DNA as well, of course, or the eye. Yeah. But you're also talking about mundane, if I can use the expression, mundane phenomena that we can all see every day. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you, you start off with any simple thing and then you ask, is this a contingent entity or a necessary entity? Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the contingency argument, um, we can definitely put up a few links in there and a few references, but largely the contingency argument is basically the bedrock of the Kalamic tradition. It is a very, very strong notion of how to prove God's existence. And it, it just starts off with just looking at something in the created world. So this glass, this pencil, sorry, this pen, this highlighter, just even a strand of hair, even just a single particle. Um, and you ask, is that a contingent or an estuary entity? Could it exist or not exist, right? If it has the potential to not exist, if it is open to non-existing, so you can conceive of it non-existing, then that means it is not intrinsically necessary. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, we know that one plus one is equal to two. It cannot equal to anything else. One plus one cannot equal to three. It would be a contradiction to say so. But it is possible 
for us to think of this cup not existing or this cup to have different configurations. It could be blue, it could be green, etc. As a result, this thing is intrinsically contingent. Now, if it's contingent, what is coming this contingent thing to come into existence? Well, you can say it must come from something else, something outside of itself. Maybe another being created it. And then you ask the same question. Is that being contingent or is it necessary? And you keep going on and on and on and on until you reach the necessary being. And that's what I'm trying to show here. There's this like um, contingency train and you stop this train until you reach the necessary being. The necessary being is the explanation of all contingencies, every single thing. So that is stage one of the argument. Um, Paul, is, was that okay? Or, that, that, you know, that, that, that's cool. No, that's good. Thank you. Okay, cool. Now, stage two of the argument is very simple, that this necessary being is, can be identified with God. And this necessary being has a will. So it, it is a volitional being. It is not something that is indifferent and cannot decide. It is a volitional being. Um, so God wills things into place. This is that, that, omnipotent. Quite, so so I'm just, I'm just on that very point, the volitional thing is quite important because in some Islamic uh, philosophy, uh, historically, Ibn Sina, for example, that I'm reading about this at, at the moment, um, it, it is that uh, the creation was some kind of uh, an, an, uh, emanated a necessary from, emanation. By, by, by necessity, I should say. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't God willing something into existence by saying B. It, it, it was almost God was compelled to create now, obviously, that's not what the Quran says, and that's why people like Ibn Taymiyyah and, and Al-Ghazali, of course, famously in the incoherence of the philosophers, criticize these. So at this point, you're not just, it's not an obscure point, it's a really important point, because a lot of really influential Islamic philosophy historically, Ibn Sina, uh, Farabi, and others have uh, had a quite different understanding, as you say, that the creation was somehow just emanated necessarily from God's being, and which is contrary to the idea of him willing it into existence volitionally, as you say in number A there. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's a willful being, and yeah. he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. Now, yeah. you can spend hours and paragraphs going through the primary text to understand how these conclusions are reached at. That yeah. is not the purpose of today's presentation. I'm taking these as a given, right, for the sake of the presentation. Oh, yeah. But you can always go back. For example, you can go to Moderation Belief, Ghazali's book, Iqtasad fil That is an excellent book which kind of does this. You can also go to Al-Juwaini's Irshad, um, um, you know, where he kind of highlights these arguments. So all of these things are there. They're, they're embedded in the works. So these are not something that you can not not find. It, it's, it's available, right? Yep. So once we've identified Nasser B and we've now come to identify this Nasser being with God, we are now ready to um, kind of come to the final uh, conclusion. So one and two entail both the first and the second uh, arguments that we looked at earlier, that the creation as a whole is a contingent thing. So everything in this creation is contingent. I'm contingent. Paul is contingent. My parents are contingent. My families are contingent. The universe is contingent. Everything in this universe, all its constituents are contingent. And they are a product of God's will. Now, what, what is inside this creation? What do you include in this? Well, a couple of things. And these things are very important. I'm highlighting these specifically for the sake of this uh, presentation. Number one, complex things. Everything that's complex is a product of God's will. This highlighter, um, even though it was made by men, etc., ultimately all of those are contingent things. Everything from the factory to the person who designed it through the, the blueprint that, that came out of the person's mind, all of those are contingent entities, and ultimately all contingencies go back to God. 
even simple stuff. So if you wanted to take, this is a very crude example, the tip of my pen, a rock lying on the ground, a piece of yeah. straw, everything, that is all part of the constituency of creation. Because we, we, know from well, quantum mechanics that we know from quantum mechanics and quantum events, there's actually nothing really very simple about anything. Even a, a very simple yeah. rock and at the subatomic level is incredibly uh, uh, fascinating complex, yeah. and busy and complex. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it doesn't in any way affect your point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So another thing is laws of nature. Laws of nature are contingent. God could have created a, worse, a universe where there were no laws, absolutely chaotic if he wanted to, right? But he, put, he created this universe with laws. Furthermore, Miracles are contingent. He could have created a universe where there, are, where there were no miracles. He could have created a world where um, Jesus did not come miraculously through Maryam, Anissa. He could have been created normally. Those are all contingent things. Now, just to be clear, in case anyone is sensitive and saying, am I contradicting the Quran? I'm not contradicting the Quran. He is a miraculous creation. I completely accept that. I'm saying he could have, if he wanted to, done it another way, right? So all of these things are a product of God's will. As a result, everything that is complex, simple, lawful, or miraculous is a product of God's will. In other words, there's a designer, we establish that designer, and he has created these things in place in the universe that we live in. So you're saying, I'm like, is, the, I'm like the ID, the American ID people, if I can put it yeah. that way, if you see what I mean, who, who focus on very local, specific, highly complex examples, DNA yeah. and so on. Uh, you're saying everything in creation, that the simple, the complex, <laughs> as you said, is contingent and it didn't have to be and is created, sustained, designed by God. And you're not privileging the spectacular complex. You're saying absolutely everything, including the complex, uh, to what is complex to us is 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 contingent and, and a product of God's creative intention in the world. So, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's that's quite a different perspective, a much more metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to draw that contrast um, um, right now. So the ID argument is very different to what what has been just said here. So they start with complexity. That's their starting point, right? So there's something really complex. And remember, complex in the biological space. I'm specifically focusing on the biological space. Yep. Now they'll say, okay, so science is currently offering explanations for some of these complex things, right? We new Darwinism uh, or new Darwinists say they can eventually, if not now, come, they have some scientific explanations for the eye or whatever have you. They'll say, okay, the science is inadequate. A better explanation is a designer. Okay. Remember the, the, the argument we looked at earlier. So a better explanation is a designer. And furthermore, that designer can be open to a variety of characterizations. It could be God, could be aliens, or could be angels. Okay. This is the Alpha Centauri, by the way. You didn't put that. Yeah. In. <laughs> uh, not any old aliens, but it's a specific tribe of aliens. <laughs> yeah, Alpha Centauri. So, so this is the ID ID setup. Okay. Now, what is the problem with the ID argument, at least from the perspective that I've I, um, uh, identified? Well, first and foremost. Um, the, so by the way, to be clear, these arguments that I'm making are not necessarily specifically from us. They could be applied to any other religious perspective. These are just, these are just uh, arguments that I'm pointing out as I go along. So first and foremost, okay, contemporary science, current science may not explain certain things, but it is possible that God could have explanations for some of those things in place, which we have not identified. For example, the origins of life the, uh, the uh, uh, bacterial flagellum. 
If neo-Darwinism cannot explain it, perhaps other causal mechanisms could. And in fact, at the very moment, and you, you might recall this, uh, Paul, from our previous video, there are mechanisms that are being discussed at the very moment by evolutionary biologists under this movement known as the extended evolutionary synthesis, which, which suggests that perhaps natural selection and random mutation on their own are not adequate. Perhaps there might be other mechanisms, and they're suggesting those and seeing how they relate to either natural selection and random mutation or how they eliminate them altogether. So that debate is taking place right now. So this, this, this idea that current science or near-Darwinian science cannot explain complexity is a potential God of the gaps fallacy. If it's not provable today, it may be provable tomorrow. Now, I know that some of the ID proponents are very optimistic that it's not, it won't be possible, yes. but there is nothing from our side to commit to that uh, in any strong sense, particularly if there's no scripture reference to it, which we'll get to in a second. But that's the first contention with the ID argument, that because current science can't explain, doesn't mean there's not going to be any explanation, Right. A hundred years ago, we never we didn't know how to go to the moon. We now can, right? So just because there there isn't a current explanation doesn't mean there is no explanation. And that's why the jump to a designer, the jump to a designer, is too swift from a lot of people's perspectives. Ahead, I'm reminded of of what uh, by today's standards, quite a humorous example. In the 19th century, there was a professor at King's College here in London, a prestigious university, uh, a professor of science who who, who uh, taught his students very solemnly that it would be impossible for people to travel in a, a tra uh, in a, a mechanical. Uh, device like a, what we would call a train or a car at any speed, say 40, 50 miles an hour, because the human body simply couldn't take the impact of the speed and it, it, it would kill us. Now, th th this is a, a professor of science telling us you basically can't go travel at any speed in a car because it would damage your body. Now, I mean, obviously he was wrong. We, we, we've traveled, you know, I traveled in a plane today that went 600 miles an hour it didn't cause me any harm i don't think but you know he, he could assert with such confidence that it was it was actually in, the laws of physics prohibited human beings from traveling at any speed more than 40 miles an hour because it would damage us he was wrong uh, and so uh, it, it was it's it, he is a hostage to fortune in making statements like that science has disproved him obviously Sure. Do you know the name of the professor, Paul? I, I, I can't. I, I'll, I'll look it up. By the way, I do think there are objections to what you're saying, which I've just thought of some, but we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. And it's, it's not to do with the complexity. Sure. It's, to do with, it's to do with ontology, but I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sure. Okay. So um, now the, the, um, uh, the uh, just to add another example to that, uh, when, when Darwin, Charles Darwin, first proposed the theory of evolution, the physics of his day back in 1859 yep. did not permit uh, an earth older than 500 million years as a maximum, as a maximum. And that was due to the constraint of Lord Kelvin, who was a very um, influential physicist of the day. In his personal opinion, it seems like he narrowed it down to 20 million years. So, I mean, Darwin was under a lot of um, uh, anxiety because of that, that constraint. Only did we, when we, when he discovered radioactivity, only when we discovered that we realized that time can be pushed back more than we ever imagined. And mm. so similarly here, there is potency for us to discover some stuff or come up with new explanatory narratives, which Absolutely. will explain those complexities. Yep. So that's why it's a potential God of the gaps fallacy. Yeah. Now, uh, the second thing is even, even if you took the argument for what it is, they clearly make the case that the designer does not necessarily prove God. And um, uh, in, uh, in Stephen Meyer's newest book, he actually affirms this. In, this is in his new book. I acknowledge that I personally uh, thought that the designing intelligent responsible for life was God, but the evidence from biology alone could not definitively establish that. Consequently, if intelligent design best explains the origin of biological information, then either a transcendent or a pre-existing imminent intelligence, one within the cosmos, so, so like aliens from Alpha Centauri, <laughs> could at least in principle explain that evidence of design. This is from yeah. his book. I'm not yeah. making it up. And I, actually, I, actually, I actually made this point to him, the person who said that, and he, and he admitted this, but he links it with the three, the cosmological and the biological and... and uh, yeah. so this, one. It's a cumulative argument rather than just a single argument. And together, it presents a very, very strong case. So he recognizes sure. what you're saying. Yeah. Well, sure, yeah. So go ahead. Sorry, Paul. No, no. I, I'm just acknowledging what you're saying. But, but his response, because I, I mentioned this to him, is to link it with two other arguments. And together, he feels that that would be his, his uh, presentation to, for intelligent design. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see, that, that's where I find that move very interesting, because historically speaking, IE was all about biological spaces. Now, I question why did they move into cosmological? Because I think they finally realized biology on its own doesn't do the job. And so that's why they have to now cumulative work with the physical space. And so that's why I think that move is now being done in the more recent literature. Whereas previously, it was very focused on the biology. Regardless, I mean, cosmological design is a different turf altogether. But I just want to say biological design on its own does not prove God. From even directly quoting from Stephen Myers. Hmm. Now you could say, ah, well, Shrey. Okay, okay, okay. Let's just say, all right, let's just say biological design was created by an alien. Okay. And you could ask, well, who created that alien? Well, and who created that alien? And if you keep going on and on and on, eventually you'll get to the necessary being, God. Then if you do entertain that option, my point then to that is you're not arguing for design anymore. You're falling back on contingency. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. When you do that uh, regression analysis, um, where you say alien, alien, and then you keep going on and on and on, you are doing contingency analysis, which then comes back to the question, then why bother with the ID argument? If contingency does the job, why bother? So this is the, the key point here, that there are certain shortcomings with the ID argument. That doesn't necessarily mean that 
they're false altogether. But I'm just saying that th- these are certain pitfalls that you would need to think, think about. If you are committed to ID, this is something you need to think about. Because if ID is doing the job, then why bother with us? Uh, if contingency is doing the job, why are you relying on ID to make the case for God when even they themselves don't say this is the case? So this is the, the second criticism that I, I have with the ID argument. And then finally, and this is now more to do with the scope of the paper, um, but the previous two points kind of build it up to this. Um, scripture itself does not force us to commit to any potential gaps in nature except for miracles, right? Except for miracles. So, um, for, for example, the Quran mentions the alternation of night and day, lightning, mountains, cloud, and, you know, rain clouds, all that. It's a, and in, in the modern day and age, we have explanations for those. We know how we get night and day because of the alternation of the sun. We know how lightning works on the, in the physical chemistry space. We know how mountains are geographically pegged down. We know how rain clouds work, etc. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying we have the ultimate explanation. Ultimate explanation always God. I'm saying we have proximate secondary explanations of naturalistic phenomena. We have those explanations in place, right? Now, just because we have those explanations doesn't mean God is gone. Doesn't mean he's out of the equation, right? I'm just saying that even the things that God is asking us to reflect on, we have scientific explanations for those things, right? Now, for things that the Quran doesn't even discuss, for example, the Quran doesn't discuss the origins of life. The Quran doesn't discuss the origins of species. Again, and I put that in there in case people might uh, worry. I, I'm not saying miracles fit into this into the question. Adam, Eve, Jesus are all miraculous creations. We believe in their miraculous creations. There's no de- denying any of that whatsoever, right? But what I'm saying is the Quran is, the, is not even uh, compelling us to commit to a stance on the origins of life or a stance of the origin of species. We don't necessarily need to work with a, a framework which compels us to do so. And so, uh, and here's the best part. If there was a scientific explanation, it would be a contingent thing and therefore be accepted. Even if there was no explanation, it would be a miracle and therefore be accepted. Either way, both are contingencies. The ID argument says you should, you, there should be no scientific explanation, therefore you should go to a designer. But even if there was a scientific explanation, the argument for contingency would still hold. And so putting this all together, I'm sorry, Paul, do you want to say something before I no, summarize? No, 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 I'm, I'm letting you finish before I say anything. Carol. Yeah. Right, okay. So to, to kind of summarize the paper, right, and just to kind of make the, the, the differences, well, the similarities and the differences clear, the ID argument and the Quranic design argument agree that there is design and complexity in the universe. They both agree that you can infer a supernatural designer. And now, again, for the ID crowd, um, they affirm that biological design is a weaker inference than cosmological design. They make that very clear. If you see the last footnote in the article, I have a quotation from Stephen Meyer where he, he agrees to that point. So both of them have no problem inferring the supernatural designer. Now, for the ID, however, natural causes of some design and complex phenomena needs to be negated for a supernatural design. ID say yes, the Quran design says no. Could be, could not be. But we don't have a stance on this whatsoever. And as a result of that, this is a dis- point of difference that we need to acknowledge um, in our discussion and our discourse on Islam and evolution. The reason why I think this is important, because I personally believe that... Um, if a lot of Muslims are pegging their faith on there being no scientific explanation on the origins of life or some of these gaps in the fossil record or whatever have you, and in the future, if we do come to arrive at that, it could potentially ruin their faith. That's the reason why. Whereas from the get-go, contingency swallows everything. Contingency, whether it's miraculous, you know, uh, whether it's complex, simple, laws, all of it is already under the discussion of God. 
But when you're starting with design and you're saying, aha, there's a gap in the, in the evolution narrative, therefore a designer, you are opening yourself, first of all, to unnecessary commitments and also potential falsification, which don't need to be there. And so that is my summary of the paper. And I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to, to do so, Paul. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for such a, a lucid and concise uh, uh, presentation. Thank you. And I, I noticed you got your email. Um, you obviously uh, welcoming uh, emails from people if they wanted to ask you questions or make comments. Yeah. Um, I, I was just thinking uh, about this. Uh, the a couple of things. One is the contingency argument itself, how we get from contingent to necessary, um, and the, yeah. the, 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 the question of infinite regress. Uh, it, it's implied there that infinite regress doesn't happen. It's impossible. It's logically impossible, which may be true. I'm not denying mm. that. But, but apart from that, it was something that was occurring to me. Um, how, how can I put it? By, by, way, by way of a little story, when I was a philosophy undergraduate, I was uh, I'm, um, studying University of London. And I, I remember I, I did a course on the philosophy of mind. And the professor himself was from UCL, a very distinguished professor. And I remember he asked us to try and, th and I won't go into the details of the class, but it was to do with how we understood the, the, uh, a patch of pink. This is the actual example he gave. How is it we, 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 uh, uh, we use our minds to understand a patch of pink and how difficult it was philosophically to articulate this and understand this, whatever. But I, I remember in the class, and I was a Christian at the time, and I, I remember sitting there and thinking, Wow, I'm aware of the music of Bach. I'm aware of great art. You know, we can't even really grapple with a, 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 a on the the, philo the philosophical way that he was explaining it. Uh, sorry, I need, I need to make one thing clear before I proceed. He, he was proceeding from analytical philosophy, which is the Anglo-American way of doing philosophy. Yeah. And when it comes to mind, mind is or con human consciousness is seen as an epiphenomenon, a byproduct of the material brain. So it, it, there's no soul, there's no spirit. It's simply a kind of a byproduct of, well, basically evolution, if you like. Um, and I remember thinking, we need a paradigm shift. This, this, we're not, we're trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps here. We're, we can't really, on this paradigm, this materialist understanding of the mind, understand a patch of pink without extreme difficulty, it seems. How are we going to understand high art, great music? You know the beauty of a sunset and and so love, truth, virtue, and so on. And I thought we need we need a revolution, we need a paradigm shift here. And I, I'm an idealist. I was an idealist. There. I'm still an idealist in philosophy. In philosophy, I mean, um, which means I, I believe that uh, I believe in the priority of mind, consciousness, uh, rather than matter. Matter comes from consciousness, which is another way of saying that God made the world. I suppose. Now, why am I saying all this? This is a kind of preamble to the question of the human soul. And I believe, as you do, human souls exist. When we die, our souls live on beyond our material demise. Um, I, I am not, I'm, per, I mean, I'm not a scientist. So I'm not convinced that our current materialist, what you call natural scientific methodologies, are up to grasping what the human soul is, let alone human consciousness, <laughs> the human soul. I mean, that, that, that element of our humanity, which outlives our physical existence on earth. Now, why does this matter? Because we're not trying, because the, the reason I'm saying this, because you mentioned two things, uh, miracles or natural causality. But there are other things which are not just those two. And here is one, the soul. The soul is not miraculous in that it's created like 
Adam was created or Jesus was created. It's part of what it is to be human. And yet I personally am not convinced that the scientific methodology, the Darwinian or naturalistic explanations can or will ever, will ever be able to properly understand the human soul. Why? Not because scientists are stupid or one day they will be able to get it. It's because their very methodology, their paradigm, the assumptions about what reality is are such they won't be able to understand it unless there is a paradigm shift to use Thomas Kuhn's, you know, the great Chicago philosophy of science word. We need a, a, a revolution in, uh, where we understand the universe. Then we might be able to, perhaps, in a more idealistic direction, which takes consciousness and mind in some sense, in some way, primary in, in, in the universe. Do you see what I'm saying? So I, I'm, I, 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 this kind of miracle or natural causality, I think the other things that science, as we understand it, will cannot understand unless it, has a very different understanding of the nature of, of existence, consciousness, materiality, and the human being. So I think there is an irreducible irreducibility to the soul, actually, that science is never going to understand because it's in a different level. It's, it's a different ontology from natural processes, bottom-up material sure. explanations. Um, and, and that is an addition to your natural explanations and miracle yeah. the, the two yeah. there's a third category and like there are other examples i could give as well uh, ndes which are i personally find near death experiences you know the attempt to uh reduce these to some kind of uh you know the the, uh, the the gasping breath of a dying brain producing these fantastic illusions i don't get that because th these things can be tested to the the out-of-body experience that people had and report are verified empirically to be accurate. So again, that's another phenomenon. Um, so sorry to be a lot long-winded there. I, I'm just giving a, a further complexity, which I don't feel was addressed in your presentation anyway. Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, I'd like to clarify that philosophy of mind is not an area that I specialize in. So that's the reason why I, don't, I, I haven't looked at this area. Will I look into the future? Yes, but not at the current state um, at the moment, just because of, of, of certain uh, academic commitments. Now, in terms of the this other category that you're referring to, so these would be what I would call loosely supernatural categories. So science can never study heaven. Science can't even study God, jinn, you know, uh, hell. All of these are not, you, as you can say, reducible to the um, physical world, right? The soul may be one of those things. So I, I have no problem entertaining that. Okay. Um, and if science believes that it can answer everything, that's when I think it starts to uh, go from science to scientism. So as, as I've said it several times before, that science is a methodology that tries to explain everything in natural, spatial, spatial temporal terms. Exactly. And that is the job of the scientist. That is exactly the job of science. It is a naturalistic explanation of um, anything that it can find as an object of study. Okay, so if it's going to study humans, it's going to have a certain framework, a certain mechanic, a certain procedure in place. And that's fine, according to the validity of that methodological paradigm. Can it go beyond that? Perhaps not. And I think we'll, we'll see certain limits that um, science may be hitting, perhaps now or later. I don't know. I can't pr predict that. Um, but I do admit that there are things beyond the natural world. Um, the soul could be one of them, heaven and hell, etc. So, yes, there could be certain things that are outside the measure of science. But my presentation today was not necessarily about these supernatural things, which I exist already. And remember, these still come under contingency. That's mm. my point, that whether something is explainable by science or not still is a contingent entity that falls back into the, into the necessary being. Yeah. My point is specifically 
in the scope of this presentation is about the biological space, particularly complexity in the biological space, and how they don't necessarily fall to the errors of the ID camp. And I'm just trying to say, looked at from that broader framework, everything, miracles, lawful things, supernatural things, all fall back on contingency. That is why that is our ultimate root in the economic paradigm. No, that's indeed. what I'm saying. Uh, no, that, that, that's well taken. I, 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 I see that. Uh, no, that, that's fair enough. C can you just run, run by me again the thing about necessary being? I, I had an atheist friend of mine once, um, and we didn't use the language of contingency, but he said he was an atheist, but when pushed, like so many atheists, he was actually agnostic because he couldn't prove the non-existence of God, of course. He could only say, oh, well, I... I don't see any evidence of God. That's what he said, which is kind of agnosticism rather than atheism, saying there isn't a God. And he, he, so I asked him to explain, uh, it, it, this was some years ago, you know, the, the existence of the universe itself, you know, the, the, the brute reality. Why is there something rather than nothing? And his response was disarmingly inadequate in a way, but he just said, it just is. It just is. Oh, brute fact. Okay, so that's the brute fact response. Yeah, yeah the, the, brute, the brute fact. It's kind of... You know, for him, it's just a given. It just is, and he does. He didn't see the necessity to invoke necessary a necessary being to explain the existence of the universe. And even though I found that really inadequate as an explanation, because it's kind of almost lazy. You know, you just say you're just shrugging your shoulders. I think how lazy. You know, but you wouldn't do anything else, would you? You look for a cause, a reason. But for this, it just is. But uh, but but it, nevertheless, it, it kind of had a, a, some power, I suppose, some force to it. Why 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 couldn't one just say the universe just is uh, and just leave it at that? Why do we have to invoke a necessary being as a, as an ontological ground of being, so to speak? Yeah, so I think here um, uh, I remember reading a response. I forgot now which book, but um, it seems to be an arbitrary cutoff point. So, for example, if a book fell and you just said that was just is without finding the cause, what caused the book spell. This is an arbitrary stopping point. Um, and so that's why people still push further to understand exactly where did that come from. So the universe as a whole, um, just like we want to explain why there are laws in the universe, how they operate. Well, why do we exist in the universe with these exact laws? And scientists are trying to push that to a multiverse, right? So they're yes. still searching for answers. Now the multiverse, even if true, even though if true, right, which would still be a contingent thing and therefore not a problem, but even if true, it would still call the question, well, where did the multiverse come from? So that curiosity always kind of drives us forward, both on a scientific angle. And if people just want to say, this is a brute fact, then you might as well say, okay, scientists stop talking because we've reached the multiverse. We don't need to go any further. So not only will it not work on the theological or the philosophical plane, it might be a science stopper. <laughs> No, I, I, I completely agree with you. It's completely arbitrary to uh, refuse to ask the why question when it came to the yeah. universe, but allow it in every other sphere of life. And I'm thinking, what a peculiar, what a peculiar response. And of course, the suspicion is, of course, because they're trying to resist the, the reality of God. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. you know, we can't, we don't want to go there. This is the last thing we want to talk about is God. <laughs> so we're just going to say, no, I'm not going to ask that question. I'm not going to ask why. Okay. I can see why you don't want to ask it, but we're going to ask it. The rest of us are going to talk about it because blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with your answer. Yeah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Yeah, I mean, like, um, for me, like, uh, this is the reason why I think that a lot of these conversations in science or religion, 
in my opinion, that they're less to do with some of these science and more to do with the wider philosophical and theological paradigms. Yeah. And that's why in almost all of my works, I start, I start first from that wider theological paradigm and then localize it into the inquiry that I'm looking at. Um, and I think that's the best way to go forward, because once you have that wider map, everything in terms of these local conversations become clear. Now, of course, we can do um, all these academic rigor conversations. Does the co contingency argument work? What are the flaws? What are the counter arguments, et cetera? That has been done. And people are still doing it today. People like um, Joshua Rasmussen. He's an excellent philosopher. He's written a book on the topic. Right. Uh, William Lane Craig. He's done a good job on the KCA. And there's always going to be back and forth between you know, people who are arguing for or and either side. Um, but I think that once you kind of understand where you sit, situate yourself on these bigger questions, then it comes, it becomes easier to address these more localized questions. And since, and that's me personally speaking, uh, before I, I came from a very rigid scientific background, almost, I would say pretty much scientism in flesh. Right. Wow. And so I would, I, miracles would be weird for me because of my engineering background. Like that doesn't make sense. Where does that come into place? Right. But when I started learning creed in particular, everything kind of really made clear, everything was clarified for me. And now what I'm trying to do is kind of just show people that going back to those foundational principles helps a lot with navigating these concerns and inquiries. Um, and I hope that this presentation is one form of output where you can see that, you know, uh, having that larger perspective addresses some of these local concerns effectively. I, I think well, what I like about your presentation, because it, it really hits, it nips in the bud right at the beginning, this concern, which I've even seen in tweeting about your presentation in advance people are saying oh well you know he denies intelligent design this is not islamic and so right at the beginning you you, you disambiguate these terms because they are confusing you're talking about a particular yeah. variant found in north america uh with a particular fixation on complexity whereas the contingency argument of course ex explains the existence of everything in the universe as <clears throat> as contingent and, and, and dependent on a necessary being, i.e. God. So it, it's much more uh, a broad and, well, scientifically impossible to refute because it's not a scientific theory. It presupposes yeah. it's, it's a metaphysical yeah. theory. It's a metaphysical insight. But I think yes. even, even more importantly, it, it is grounded in, in, the, in what the Quran infers or, or teaches about um, God and, and the, the, the universe itself. And, uh, uh, and so I, I think it's... Uh, is very Islamic, I should put it that way, uh, a very Islamic argument. And, and uh, <clears throat> I think philosophically it's more, uh, it's impregnable, I, I would say. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I feel that way about it too. Uh, I mean, like, I'm always trying to keep up with the latest academic literature to kind of see the arguments back and forth as they as they get more technical with the advanced machinery of logic. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very convinced by it. It, it. it seems to be very rock solid for me. Mm. Excellent. Well, thank, well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. That's, uh, thank you very much indeed, um, Shoaib, for your uh, outstanding presentation. I say I do like its clarity. It, it's very concise. I'll link to the, uh, the more academic version in the uh, <clears throat> description below. Um, if you want to look at uh, there's some, uh, quite a few Quranic references there and, and for further reading and, and further notes as well. So thank you so much indeed, Shoaib, for, for your time. And um, Oh, no, thank you so much, Paul. You've always been an amazing host. And uh, I just want to say it one more time in case people forgot. This article this article wasn't written by just by myself. It was co-authored with two other people, Sheikh Hamza Karamali, um, who, uh, believe it or not, he was actually, when I just got out of my PhD, he was the first person who kind of introduced me to Kalam. I was very unfamiliar with Kalam. He's the first person I met. So we met back seven years ago. 
Then he went into hiding. He had us. No, that's a joke. So, no. <laughs> so, so, now. <clears throat> anyway, and yeah, then, he, so, and then, and then he, he ended up in Istanbul. But I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then we, we caught up about a year ago, and alhamdulillah, since then we were on a very good um, page, and we're just kind of working on a lot of different projects together. And the, the third person is a PhD candidate, uh, Muhammad Khaleli, who is doing his PhD on Ashurism and atheism. And he will, um, from what I can read based on his ideas he's, he's going to come up with a fantastic dissertation and eventually inshallah a book so these are the three people who are involved with this um, their emails are in the article so if you want to, to reach out to them you can do so they are mentioned in the article oh, fantastic no i think your your, your, your team of you are now doing outstanding work and uh, i i do uh encourage people to leave comments and discuss these and and just to be very clear what we're talking about here in criticizing um, the american id absolutely not rejecting intelligent design in a more generic sense, in a wider sense, in an Islamic sense. It's the Christian American variant, which is seen as problematic for the reasons that Shweb uh, so, so clearly outlined. So um, I hope that that is clear. That's my one reservation that people won't get that point. I'm, and not, not through any fault of yours, because you made it crystal clear, but it still might not get through, but I hope it does. Uh, and then Inshallah. this is a real Islamic alternative to the American ID uh, uh, without all the the potential pitfalls uh, for faith as well, so fantastic. Well, there you are. Thank you very much, DJ uh, Shweb, and uh, and thank you, and uh, have a good Ramadan as well, sir. You too. And is there anyone else who's fasting? Thank you very much. Bye bye. Keep Take me in your prayers. Inshallah. Take care. Till next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.